This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American, and this week I'm sitting in for Ira Flato. Later in the hour... What biomedical researchers are learning about the medical miracle of maggot therapy, yes, and ways to listen or watch that you may not expect. Is your potato chip bag giving you away? But first, progress towards COVID vaccines continues for younger and younger people, with an FDA advisory panel voting unanimously to recommend that the Pfizer vaccine be approved for children as young as five. Vox staff writer Umer Irfan is here with more on that and other stories from This Week in Science. Welcome back, Umer. Thanks for having me, Sophie. So this week, COVID vaccines for kids got a step closer. Umer, what's the latest? This advisory committee to the Food and Drug Administration that looks independently at this data basically concluded that the benefits for this vaccine outweigh the risks in ages 5 to 11. This is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that already has full FDA approval for adults, and now this moves us to a lower age bracket, which could potentially include upward of 28 million children, and these shots could potentially start rolling out as soon as early next week. Will kids be getting the same dose adults did and the same way that adults did? No, they will not. So one of the critical things they did in this clinical trial is that they used a lower dose. They wanted to measure and ensure that children were still generating the same immune response as adults, but they wanted to use a lower level of the inoculum because they wanted to minimize the amount of side effects that were potentially could occur. And, you know, a lot of doctors and scientists will tell you children are not little adults. And so they wanted to make sure that they started from scratch and made sure they had a dosing that was actually optimal. And so with this one third level dose still administered as two doses spaced three weeks apart, they found that they could generate a similar level of immune response in children as they did in adults with the full vaccine dose. And they found that the vaccine was 90.7% effective at preventing symptomatic disease in these children. Naturally, some people are going to wonder how much we know about this vaccine in kids. What can you tell us about the risks and the testing that went into it? Well, one thing to consider is that we've already distributed this vaccine to hundreds of millions of people in the United States and around the world. And that was a key factor in why these uh, advisors felt very safe in administering this to children. Basically, we know what the potential side effects are. They're extremely rare. And in the clinical trial, they did not see many of the severe side effects at all in these children. Now, this clinical trial that they did for children was much smaller. But again, they felt confident because, again, we have such a huge volume of data to draw on. Now, the other thing to consider, though, is that children are generally at lower risk for severe disease with COVID-19 compared to adults. And so the cost-benefit really 
relationship is a little bit different. That said, we know that children have gotten sick from this disease, children have died from this disease, and children can transmit this disease. And so that's why it's important to get those children vaccinated to close off that final route of transmission, and also why doctors want to make sure that we're not going to do this through a mass rollout like we did with adults, but rather want children to go to their doctors and clinics and have a physician sort of do the one-on-one talk with them to make sure that they're perfectly eligible and that this is safe and effective for them in particular. So what happens next? Can we expect vaccine approvals for even younger kids maybe? That is likely the plan. You know, Pfizer says that they are conducting clinical trials in younger groups as well, you know, as young as ages two and also um, in infants as well. You know, we want to make sure that um, very young children have weaker immune systems and so want to make sure that they can have this level of protection in some of their most vulnerable states and close off the final, you know, vulnerable populations and hopefully move us closer towards a more protected society. Moving on to other COVID news, there's been some potential legal action in Brazil relating to the pandemic. Tell me about that. That's right. You know, lawmakers in Brazil, the Brazilian Senate, recommended this week that the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, be charged with crimes against humanity for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, those charges will be handed off to Brazil's prosecutor general, who will have to pursue those charges. It's not likely that they will. But the fact that the Brazilian Senate actually came to this conclusion they is, is hugely remarkable. They put out this huge thousands of pages report looking at all the public health strategies that were pursued and weren't pursued by this government. For instance, on Bolsonaro's watch, Brazil suffered one of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks in the world that resulted in 600,000 Brazilians dying across the country. That's the second highest death toll in the world behind the US. Bolsonaro himself got COVID-19. And so there was a whole suite of policies that he did that really exacerbated the situation. So are bad decisions criminal? That's kind of the thing to consider here. Yeah, this is, we're in kind of uncharted legal territory. But that's what the Brazilian Senate is arguing, that, you know, even though we have hindsight, they say that at the time we knew that some of the tactics that the Brazilian government was pursuing were flawed. For instance, you know, Bolsonaro initially ignored the disease and then said that it wasn't a big deal. He was reluctant to impose restrictions on gathering and implement social distancing measures. Then he promoted hydroxychloroquine, this anti-malaria drug, as a treatment for COVID-19 with very little evidence behind it. And then he also pursued this herd immunity strategy where basically he thought that letting people deliver deliberately get infected or letting the virus run rampant was a better way to get to widespread protection rather than actually trying to control the spread. And then a lot of Brazilian senators also said that he botched the vaccine rollout. So a lot of missteps along the way, they say, stem from a fundamental lack of preparedness and failing to take this pandemic seriously. Is this something he could actually be tried and punished for? Or do you think this is more of a censure in words only? At this point, it does seem like it's more of a political maneuver. You know, some members of the Brazilian Senate said they want to submit these charges to the International Criminal Court. And like I said, it's up to Brazil's prosecutor general to file charges. And it's unlikely at this point because they may have some political relationship between them. And so it's not likely that he's going to go to jail. But again, this investigation, this public report that documented basically very thoroughly all the mistakes the Brazilian government made is also sort of a way to a lesson for the next pandemic. You know, this is an interesting public health document as well as a political one that sort of illustrates all the mistakes that were made. You know, we spent a lot of time highlighting how some countries did a good job, but it's also worth highlighting some of the big mistakes that are out there and what we can do to prevent them the next time another disease rolls out. 
In better news this week, you have a story about helpful bacteria. Yeah, I was reading a piece in New Scientist by Michael LePage that looked at this really interesting microbiology experiment. And this was this team that in a preprint paper showed that they were able to create artificial symbiotic bacteria. These are bacteria that not just infect cells, but actually live in them harmoniously. And in this case, they can actually produce beneficial proteins. Where do they come from? So this is a bacterium called Bacillus subtilis, which is a common bacteria found in gut. And in this case, they were using them to infect immune cells from mice. And what the scientists found is that the proteins that these bacteria emitted, you know, could be used to modify some functions of the cell. And they say that theoretically, you could eventually use these kinds of bacteria to improve healing. You could also improve tissue regeneration, eventually use them to even fight cancer. And the idea is eventually you can use these modified engineered bacteria as symbiotic helpers for human cells and use them to help treat diseases and other kinds of problems. It seems like if you could get them to release one kind of protein, you might be able to do other sorts as well. That's exactly right. And, you know, we have an example in our own cells already. We have these organelles called mitochondria, and they produce energy for the cell. And some scientists theorize that these organelles actually originated as symbiotic bacteria because these organelles reproduce sort of independently of the cell itself. And so that's one kind of relationship that's already occurred in nature. And they think that, you know, if we can cultivate this again, we can do other useful things, not just for human cells, but also for things like plants. Like they were thinking that, you know, you can incorporate nitrogen fixing bacteria directly into plant roots, which can allow them to essentially self-fertilize and help improve agricultural yield. So that's another potential application. You also have a story this week about bionic glasses. Who are these for? Well, this was a specific case of a 58-year-old biology teacher who lost her sight 16 years ago. Uh, In a piece in The Scientist by Lisa Winter, she talked about how this uh, teacher worked with a team at the University of Utah with an implant that went directly into her visual cortex and then connected to a set of glasses. And the research team found that over the course of a few months, they were able to coach this teacher to actually be able to discern letters and shapes. So... There's the glasses part outside, but there's also a brain implant involved with this. So it's it's this isn't something we're going to see for casual use, correct? Yeah, this is an experiment, to be clear, and it was temporary. And so the researchers did remove the implant after six months. But it shows that this is potentially one way to help restore sight. You know, this is somebody who was blind and was able to later see. And now the research team is conducting a clinical trial of this device in four other patients. So potentially this could be something that is used in some instances to help people, you know, regain a sense that they have lost. Mm -hmm. And lastly, you have a story about a distant planet, but one that's very, very distant. Yeah, that's right. A NASA team reported this week that they found the first planet or hints of the first planet for the first time outside of our Milky Way galaxy. You know, this is a whirlpool galaxy that's 28 million light years away from Earth called Messier 51. And they found this using this X-ray observatory. Uh, This planet, it's about as big as Saturn, but it's about double the distance of Saturn from its star. How do you even start to see something that's that far away? That's a really good question. You know, uh, with conventional measures, you know, with the way scientists detect planets in our own galaxy, what they do is they look at the light coming off of a star and they watch for dips in the brightness as planets transit between the star and the observer. And by measuring how much that brightness drops off, they can calculate 
the size of the planet and how far away it is from the star. The problem is with visual light, it degrades over very, very long distances. And so you need to look at something that's uh, more powerful and X-rays provide that. You know, X-rays can travel over much longer distances. They're much more energetic. And so by detecting X-rays, they're able to see these potential planets from much further away. And I keep saying potential because the scientists say they want to verify this by waiting for the planet to transit across the star again. The problem is the next time that'll happen may not be for another 70 years. So that would be a really long-term experiment. Yeah, we need some very patient scientists or a next generation to sort of pick this up to make sure that they're on the right track. And how confident are they that they've got something here? You said they wanted to confirm it, but is that more for peace of mind or is it something that we should still be unsure about until they've got better evidence? It's, they think they want to make sure that they're on the right track. They're using a technique that piggybacks off of existing techniques, but this is the first time it's been tested. So they want to try this out looking at other very, very distant stars as well to see if they also have planets. And yeah, it is going to take some time to make sure that this is still a viable technique, but scientists do think that they're on the right track. And that's all the time we have. Umer Irfan, staff writer for Vox. Thanks for joining us, Umer. Thanks for having me, Sophie. When we come back, side channel surveillance, using approaches you wouldn't expect to gain information. Stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Sophie Bushwick. You know how it works in the spy movies. The room is bugged with a microphone hidden in a potted plant. But what if the plant itself is the microphone? A few years ago, researchers found that video of a plant's leaves was enough to show the tiny movements that happen when the leaves vibrate in response to sound, and that they could reconstruct the sounds in the room using only silent video of the leaves. And recently, researchers reported that, with a lot of processing, they could use video of a seemingly blank wall to reconstruct the shadows of the people inside a room and get an idea of their movements. In each case, you're not pointing a microphone or a camera directly at your targets, but you're using some other object or process to get information about what's going on inside the room. Call it side-channel surveillance. That's what we'll be talking about with my guests. John Callis is Director of Technology Projects for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Welcome. Thank you very much. Kevin Fu, Associate Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Michigan. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Hei Young No, she's an Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford. Thanks for joining me today. Sure. Thank you. Nice to meet you all. So, Kevin, I talked about using this plant as a microphone or a wall as a camera. You've done work with using a hard drive as a listening device. What do all these things have in common? Is there a way to look at these different projects collectively? Well, I think, uh, at least in the research in my laboratory, my students look at how sensors can be synthesized out of everyday objects. 
And so the group you're referring to uh, at MIT looked at how to use a, uh, a potted plant. Uh, in our case, we looked at how components inside spinning magnetic hard drives uh, could inadvertently become a synthesized microphone fully capable of reconstructing speech in the room. How does that work? How do you use a hard drive as a listening device? Well, there's a lot of interesting angles on that, but the 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 short answer is you can think of a hard drive, a magnetic hard drive, as almost like a record player. And there's effectively a needle. It's called a head, and it moves around. Now, it turns out vibrations in the room cause this head to jiggle just a tiny amount. And so there's a, a sensor effectively on the inside to make that head stay in the center of the track, because you don't want it getting off the center of the track or you will not be able to read the data properly. Uh, and there's something called the position error signal, how many nanometers off the center of the track that head is. And so by looking at that error, that is how far off the center of the track, you can effectively synthesize uh, what behaves like the membrane of a microphone. How much that head is vibrating is directly proportional to the sound in the room. Hey, Young, your work is on a bit larger of a scale. You're using an entire structure, an entire building even, as a sensor. Tell me about that. Uh, yes, yeah, that's correct. So the big, large structures like buildings and bridges or cars uh, around us will usually think of them as something static, passive, a big chunk of concrete or metal just sitting there. Uh, but they are actually continuously interacting with humans inside or surrounding environment. Like For example, when you're in the building walking around, your individual footsteps will create small vibration on the floor, which will propagate through the entire building through the structure. So by capturing these structural vibrations, we can find a lot of information about you, like who you are, where you are, what kind of activities you're doing, or even your health status or cognitive status. You can get all of that just from somebody's footsteps? Uh, yes, that's what uh, my group has been working on. And uh, if, when you capture these vibrations and analyze it, there's a lot of uh, unique gait patterns associated with your identity or the activity types uh, or your health status. Is that something you need vast amounts of training data to know what a normal person walking sounds like? It depends on what your final goal is. If your goal is to look at what your health status is compared to all the other people, then yes, we'll need to have a training data set from a large number of other people. But another way to look at this problem is just monitoring your gait pattern and how it has been changing um, from like a week ago or a month ago. And especially if you are uh, in certain uh, medical treatment, then we can also monitor your gait pattern, what it was like before the treatment started and afterwards, and see how the effective the treatment is. So in that case, you don't need a lot of training data set. You will just need the data for from yourself. Kevin, one tool that can be used to eavesdrop is this chip bag. Just like the way that a plant vibrates, a chip bag can also vibrate. And it seems like this is an analog object, but it's being analyzed in a digital way. And a lot of these techniques do seem to involve these intersections between analog world and digital world. Can you talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, the analog world is quite fascinating. Uh, it's having a resurgence because we've tried to make everything digital, converting everything to bits and bytes. And, and sometimes in the engineering field, we forget that beneath all this is fundamental physics. And so with the chips bag, for instance, when vibration hits uh, a reflective uh, foil bag, it scatters photons differently. And if you have an appropriate light detector, you can begin to discern what was the vibration in the room based upon the changes uh, in the light. And there are all sorts of examples of, of these sort of uh, uh, bizarre ways that the physics can play out uh, in that sensors can be synthesized uh, through these kinds of materials, even if they weren't built in, designed to be a microphone, for instance. It's almost like these seemingly innocuous objects are, are being transformed into digital ones. Uh, that's right. And in fact, uh, a, a colleague of mine and I, we, we coined the term uh, transduction attack, where you're uh, tricking devices into doing sort of unintended transduction of physical phenomena into electrical signals, um, sometimes tricking the sensors into seeing a false reality, but on the other hand, sometimes uh, causing the pickup of signals that you might think uh, ought to be private. Uh, and that's why I personally think students really need to spend time, even if they're doing, for instance, programming or computer science, they need to appreciate some of the underlying physics to understand the limits of how some of these things work and, and how they can fail in, in bizarre ways. John, you've been involved in security for a long time. Are these techniques things that people are actually using? Sh should I be worried about uh, someone hacking into my hard drive and eavesdropping on me? Or is this more of a fun academic exercise? I, I'm glad you brought that up because that is, in fact, one of the things that that I'm concerned about as well, which is how much of this is practical and how much of it is a demonstration to tell us uh, what is is about our connected world. In a lot of these cases, they are, in fact, not particularly practical or if somebody wanted to do it for real to surveil you, there would be better techniques than to do that. Um, we're at a point now where usable microphones and cameras literally fit inside a button. Devices that we have that have uses like help me find where I left my keys can in fact also be repurposed as as tracking devices. So there's some practicality here and some not. And it's useful for us to study this so that we have an idea about how much we really should be concerned about these things. And hey young, do you worry that some of the the research where you've got sensors scattered through a building or in a vehicle could be could create a privacy problem? So these vibration signals certainly contains a lot of information about humans. Um, however, it's, uh, since the sensor data we have is more indirect sensing data, meaning when you look at the data, it looks like just a bunch of a lot of noise. Uh, and the signal we're collecting has very small magnitude of information compared to the uh, other noise included in the data. So it needs a lot of processing in order to extract out the information we want. 
So in that sense, it has a lot less privacy concern compared to other existing sensing modalities, for example, visions or um, the sound data. Uh, but it is true that uh, with proper processing of the data, there could be potentially a lot of information can be leaked. Is there anything I can do, anything I can do with my environment to really halt this kind of attack? One of the things that I think seems scary about this area of research is it turns all these everyday objects around me into potentially creepy uh, surveilling objects. And short of you know throwing everything away and living in an empty padded cell, uh, is there anything I can really do to change that? There are lots of obvious things that you can do. I mean, you know, for example, a lot of work that is done that is based upon reflections that come off of windows, um, double-paned glass, curtains. These are these sorts of things that would reduce some of these, these issues. It, it is something that we understand intuitively if you've lived in an apartment building or something else, you can hear other people around. And I think it is easy to, to recognize that when we are in any environment, the actions that we take radiate outward and then being able to modify that by having better soundproofing in buildings, doing our own measures, can in fact reduce these things a whole lot. I'm talking with John Callis, Kevin Fu, and Young No about unexpected methods of side-channel surveillance. I'm Sophie Bushwick, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. One of the side channel methods I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation was a blank wall and using footage of a blank wall to determine what's going on in the rest of the room. One of the ways that researchers managed that in this study was training a machine learning algorithm by essentially acting out various activities in a room while filming the wall so that their system could learn to recognize what patterns of shadows corresponded to what motions or the number of people who were causing these shadows. I was wondering whether opening this up, any of you could could comment on whether in general side channel techniques require a lot of training in that way or whether there are some that work uh, more immediately? I think it depends upon what physical modality that we're looking at. Sound has the advantage that it travels very well through most substances and not very well through a vacuum. So it will move through solids better than it moves through air. And that is part of what gets us the effects that we've seen on everything from disk drives to potato chip bags. The, the light on a wall is something that, yes, indeed, you'd want to have a certain amount of training on. It's also understandable. It's like I, I am trying to think of what suspense movie what mystery did i see where the shadows on the wall flickering were a significant plot point um 
and acting things out is going to be trainable, but it is also going to be hard to figure out exactly what is going on. And also defense mechanisms will be there Mm -hmm. too. I recently saw a small LED panel that could be programmed to mimic somebody watching television. And the idea would be that you would leave this in a room when you were away from home for a few days and anybody who walked by your house would see the flickering of television going by and they would thus think that the house was occupied. And this is a countermeasure for that very sort of thing. I can add to that question, Sophie. Um, So certainly collecting a lot of training data for these human activities takes a lot of time and efforts. So we've been working on developing methods that can reduce these data collection efforts. For example, there are many um, domain knowledge and physics-based models that we have developed. For example, we know how the wave propagates within the buildings, and we have good idea of what kind of pressure is applied to the floor when a person walks. There are medical um, models and um, the mechanical models that people have developed over the past uh, couple hundred years. And recently, with the emerging um, technology from data science side, we can certainly um, analyze these sensor data. But by combining these uh, physics-based models from the uh, each disciplines like mechanics or civil engineering or uh, medical science, with the data science, we can actually analyze these. Uh, data with a lot of noise without requiring a lot of training data. So we've been developing methods um, called like physics-informed machine learning approaches uh, that can analyze very noisy data without requiring a lot of training data. So your your question raises two interesting points in my mind. One is a public policy, one is a technical. On the public policy side, the question arises, what, what is a reasonable expectation of privacy? And uh, when you have machine learning uh, and effectively a supercomputer in everybody's pocket, um, if you've trained this, uh, you might be able to learn a lot more than a human in the room could just learn through through observation. Um, But then second, on the technical side, uh, it's uh, I'm I'm continuously impressed with how much machine learning can uh, discover uh, through inference, also make mistakes, for instance, uh, one of my students built a power outlet uh, that used machine learning on the power consumption patterns to learn whether you were infected with malware and also what website you were browsing. Um, so there's quite a bit of information that can leak, and machine learning training can give you effectively superhuman powers. We need to take a break. We'll be back with more spooky surveillance hacks in a moment. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Sophie Bushwick. I'm talking with John Callis, Kevin Fu, and Young No about unexpected methods of side-channel surveillance. And Kevin, I wanted to revisit something you mentioned. We've been talking about using these techniques to observe or to listen in, but you can use similar approaches to change data or, or to make a digital device do something unexpected. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. It's it's sort of the opposite side of the coin of a side channel. Side channel is 
violating reading confidentiality, uh, privacy. And then the opposite side is uh, modifying and injecting false information. You can almost think of it as sort of uh, inception. Uh, and so uh, one of the things uh, my laboratory studies is how to defend against malicious injection of signals into sensors. A couple years ago, we showed how to use lasers uh, to inject false conversations into voice assistants uh, through glass windows, uh, through a bell, from a bell tower, uh, simply by causing uh, minute vibrations on some semiconductors. Um, there's quite a bit of uh, research on this uh, opposite side of the coin. And I think one of the hardest challenges is how to defend against it. And that's where we spend quite a bit of time. Um, it's, there's, there's many different ways for these systems to fail. Uh, being the defender is, is a much more challenging, uh, challenging job. And uh, the, the research definitely takes uh, quite a bit of effort to come up with solutions that you can measure and demonstrate to be effective. And there's certainly quite a few solutions that have fallen away that didn't work as well as we had hoped. And for my final question, uh, I'd like to open this up to, to all of you. Where do we go from here? Um, is this going to be a cat and mouse game of surveillance from here on out? Or do you think that we're going to be able to apply these in some sort of helpful ways, like um, better health monitoring? I'll say all of the above. We are getting a good deal of health monitoring through the devices that we carry from very simple things like your phone being carried with you can do things like measure step count just from its own internal measurements. We have devices that we're doing as health monitoring specifically and can potentially identify um, conditions before they really become apparent. The question is going to be, who has that data and what expectations we have around the use of it. And that is a huge society-wide conversation that we're only starting to have right now because everything is collecting data and the ability to use it is growing exponentially. Hey, Young. Yeah, I agree with what John said. We are going to continue developing our technology so we can better understand what human needs are so we can provide better services. But that inherently comes with the concern of these privacy issues and there'll be new ways of trying to leak the information and then we'll come up with a better ways to defend uh, those attacks. For example, we are looking at how we can inject signals, vibration signals into these structures so that we can actually uh, reject a lot of attempts to uh, listen into these vibrations for malicious purposes. Uh, so there are new ways being developed in order to protect our privacy. This is, this is always going to be a work in progress. But our final goal is always to uh, better understand human needs and um, human activities so that we can serve them better. Kevin, do you also think this is a work in progress that, that we're going to have this sort of back and forth be ongoing? I think for these types of technologies, there, there will always be sort of a dual use. But I think the, the promise is great, especially in the health space. Now that instead of having to go to a doctor once a year for a physical, 
you can imagine future medical devices that uh, are more longitudinal using larger quantities of data. Um, of course, at the same time, we need to be mindful of the risks and build in appropriate controls uh, for those risks. That's why in the laboratory, we're very concerned with defensive approaches to enable future technologies to give people the confidence to reduce that risk of privacy invasion and uh, security threats. We've run out of time. I- I'd like to thank my guests. Hey Young No, she's an associate professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford. Kevin Fu, Associate Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Michigan. And John Callis is Director of Technology Projects for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thanks to all of you for talking with me today. Well, thank you for the discussion. Thank you. (laughs) That was fun. When a baby fly hatches, it has one job. And that job is to get as big as possible, as fast as possible. This is why we often find those babies, all right, they're maggots, in organic matter like dead animals or sometimes our trash. Hey, a kid's got to eat. That voracious hunger and taste for dead flesh is one reason maggots have been used to help heal wounds since antiquity. It turns out they work really, really well at getting infections out of the way so the wound can begin to close. But although maggots went out of fashion shortly after the invention of antibiotics, researchers want you to know that they're an old-school remedy with increasingly appreciated benefits in the era of antibiotic resistance. Here with more is SciFry digital producer and archive dweller Lauren Young. She's the mind behind a new piece up on the SciFry website about the recent and ongoing advances in medical maggots. You can check that out on our website, sciencefriday.com maggots. Hi, Lauren. Hey, Sophie. What got you looking into the story of medical maggots? All right, yeah, so it was a dark and stormy night. No, just kidding. I was pouring through the Sci-Fi archives, digging around for stories for our series Sci-Fi Rewind, and I stumbled upon this in a 1997 conversation Ira had with author Michelle Brute Bernstein. When, when most people think about maggots, they, they probably think about something that people used uh, before they knew better. But I was surprised to learn and interested to learn that doctors are actually still using maggots to do something, right? They are. Maggots have been worming their way back into clinical practice. So thanks to this intriguing tidbit, medical maggots sort of wriggled their way into my curiosity. (laughs) (laughs) So I really wanted to find out more what researchers have discovered since this 1997 conversation. I had reached out to Dr. Yamni Nigam, a biomedical researcher and lecturer at Swansea University in the UK. She's been studying these tiny fly larvae since the late 1990s, and she's a big fan. Most people are like, oh, wow, oh, they feel really amazing. And they're really, they're really cute, (laughs) which is something that I've always said about maggots. You know, I definitely never thought of them as cute before. But, you know, when you watch them wiggle around long enough, they they certainly (laughs) grow on you. Not literally, of course. Yeah, and more importantly, maybe they can actually help us. So when maggots feed on dead flesh and decay, they have to eat alongside other decomposers like bacteria and fungi. So it's caused them to evolve some cool protective chemicals that also happen to benefit us. Um, Yamni told me about the research of William Baer, a doctor who treated soldiers during World War I. He observed that soldiers who had maggots in their wounds were 
remarkably free of infection, even if they had gone days without medical care. It was super, yeah, super fascinating observation. (laughs) So the thing Yamni and other researchers are learning now, though, is why maggots are so good at healing wounds. And Yamni was so great to talk to once that we had to call her up again. I interviewed her earlier this week. We started out by talking about how maggots can make a difference in the wound healing process. Maggots are very speedy debriders. They are nature's debriders. And by debridement, we mean getting rid of dead necrotic tissue. If if a wound has dead necrotic tissue, debris of old skin and so on, um, it won't heal. It will never progress. If a wound is infected, it will never progress through the stages of healing. What maggots do very, very effectively is they remove the necrotic tissue and they um, absolutely get rid of the biological burden, the bacteria in the wound, and they kickstart the healing process. So they have plenty of roles to play within wound healing and, and wound debridement. Yamni, I mentioned earlier that we stopped using maggots when penicillin was invented, but now they're hot again, aren't they? <laughs> Indeed they are. I think that the, the fact that we have so many resistant strains of bacteria that are not responding to our antibiotics anymore, um, they've evolved methods and ways of evading our, our antibiotics. Uh, and yet, if you put maggots in a wound that has a resistant infection, that infection will be cleared up. So people are beginning to look back to maggots because they know that they actually can treat resistant infections in wounds. And your work in particular is looking at why that is. So what have you learned about that? So we've been looking at a couple of things. Our main focus at Swansea has been looking at how exactly are maggots clearing a wound infection. We know that they can do it, but we didn't know how. And it's only recently that we've discovered that maggots actually secrete in their spit and sweat, if you like. It's a, it's a excretion secretion, really. They actually produce these antibacterial molecules. And there are vast numbers of these molecules. Lots of them are actually tailored to the wound infection. So if you put a maggot in a wound that has a particular species of bacteria in it, that maggot will up its game to produce molecules that will specifically destroy that particular infection. That's called the inducible maggot activity. And many researchers across the world have, have shown this. But we indeed in Swansea have identified a particular small molecule that we've trademarked that's called ceratocin that we know kills MRSA and kills lots of other different types of bacteria um, that are present within the wound. And has there been any movement to take some of those compounds that you know they secrete and just use that directly instead of just putting the maggots on the wound? I think you have to watch this space, really. Certainly, that's a huge goal of scientists, clinicians. The public, I think, in general, would prefer to have a secretion-based ointment, let's say, rather than the real-life maggots. But but I myself have to say that I think the real thing is, is a factory of molecule production. It's producing whatever it needs in that wound. Not only is it producing enzymes that will digest the dead tissue, it's producing antibacterial molecules. But we also know maggots produce molecules that aid healing. So if you've put the whole package together, you've got a factory, a maggot factory on your wound for three to four days. That's as long as we leave them. Uh, and, And you've got very good beneficial effects from the whole thing. Just a quick reminder that I'm Sophie Bushwick and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking to biomedical researcher Yamni Nigam about the medical magic of maggots. 
And what would you tell someone who could benefit from maggot therapy but is maybe a little reluctant to try it? What would you tell them about what the process is like and what it feels like to have this therapy? The process is is very simple in the sense that if the wound is suitable for maggot therapy and the clinician will assess that, they will then put tiny little baby, the cutest little baby maggots, they're a a millimeter, and they will go on the wound, usually in the small polystyrene bags, and that's sealed so the maggots don't get out. And these enzymes come out of the bag, they go onto the wound, the dead tissue, they turn the dead tissue into a digestible soup almost for themselves, and then they drink that up. And that's ha- that happens within two to three days, very, very quickly. So that's the process. The bag is then removed after three or four days, and the maggots are then uh, removed from the patient. And the wound usually is absolutely sparkling clean at that point. So it is a very quick, efficient, and very effective uh, process. The feeling varies between patients. Some patients don't feel a thing. And some patients say it tickles. And then some patients feel pain. And often we find that patients that feel pain might have some underlying pathophysiology, or they might be very reluctant to have used maggots, and therefore they they have a negative association anyway. So we're finding all sorts of things. We are investigating, really, how people react to maggots. And if stigma is part of what's holding back research and, and the use of maggots in medicine, what do you think those who think that maggots are cute need to do to warm more people up to that point of view? We've launched what we call a love a maggot campaign. <laughs> We've got websites of it. And I go out to the public. I go out to not just uh, the general patients, but I go out to nurses and doctors too, because they often are also reluctant to use it. They're a little bit squeamish as well. And so I think it, it all depends on changing a mindset. It's increasing awareness that maggots can work really, really effectively, increasing acceptance, changing the negative perception. And one of the ways that we've tackled this is by going into schools. So, you know, if you put a little maggot on a three-year-old's hand, they'll be like, oh, that's so cute. But if you put a maggot on a nine-year-old's hand, they'll be like, oh, get that off me. So somewhere along the line comes an association with negativity, Uh, whether it's parents, whether it's the child themselves associating maggots with smell in the dustbin or dirt or or whatever. Um, And so we need to go into primary schools and really we need to show children how brilliant this particular medicinal maggot is and how useful it can be so that when the child grows up or when the child goes home and his grandparents have chronic wounds and leg ulcers and diabetic ulcers, he can actually say, but yes, I've learned that these maggots are brilliant and they're very beneficial. So we are tackling all aspects, all sides, really, to try and get it more accepted by the public. Is part of this stigma connected with the name maggot? And do you think that maybe there's a different name that that we could be using? We, we've had this chat repeatedly with a lot of people. One of my team said, why don't we call them high genies or something, a different <laughs> name? And And that's brilliant. But when you say, right, we're going to put high genies on you, and then the patient says, well, what's that? Then you have to say, well, they're maggots. (laughs) So so I don't think you can get around it. I think that the the stigma is, you're right, the name maggot does instill fear and repulsion in a lot of people. But I think they need to be aware that this species is a good species of maggot. This will really, really help wounds to debride, to disinfect, to heal. So I think it's all about explaining to patients, really, rather than just trying to disguise it, I think. And I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. A pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Dr. Yamni Nigam, a lecturer in biomedical science and self-described professor of maggots at Swansea University in the UK. 
You can learn more about her research and the status of maggots in medicine by checking out our producer Lauren Young's excellent piece on our website, sciencefriday.com maggots. Thanks for that story, Lauren. This is all so cool. You're welcome, Sophie. I'm never going to look at a maggot the same way ever again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the time we have for now. Here's Kyle Marion Viterbo with some of the great folks who make this show happen. Nahima Ahmed is our Manager of Impact Strategy. Diana Montano is our Outreach Manager. Ira Flato is our Executive Producer and Host. Melissa Mayers is our Office Manager. And I'm Engagement Producer Kyle Marion Viterbo. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Kyle. BJ Lederman composed our theme music. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. In New York, I'm Sophie Bushwick.